0: Welcome
1: to the HR Resource Podcast. Hello, and welcome to HR Resource. I'm David Lord, and this is the podcast for people in business who care about people in business. Our first series of podcasts will be looking at that topic we can't avoid, although no one wants. Yep, it's COVID-19. No escaping the impact of coronavirus and the effect it's having on businesses across every sector. Today's subject and point of focus is furlough. Before we're joined by today's guest, I thought it might be worth just having a little look at the brief history and some facts around furlough. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, introduced the CJRS or Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme in March of this year. He also introduced a new term into employment law along with the CJRS and that was furlough. The dictionary definition of furlough is literally a leave of absence. And this scheme was aimed to halt what was expected to be a very large swathe of redundancies as businesses struggle to cover their costs due to the impact of COVID-19. By being able to furlough staff rather than make them redundant, employers could retain a connection and ensure those employees were paid at least 80% of their salary, up to a cap of £2,500 a month. A furloughed member of staff isn't able to work for the employer during their furlough. A furlough term up until the end of June this year is taken in three week terms, The scheme's proven very popular. Two thirds of UK businesses are furloughed workers. One in three organisations, mostly privately run businesses, placed at least 75% of their employees on furlough, which equates to almost 10 million people across the UK. The current estimates of the cost of the scheme are around 40 billion pounds. I'm joined on the HR Resource podcast by the head of one of the largest litigation teams in Scotland. He's handily a very effective and hugely experienced employment lawyer, Innes Clark. Innes is a partner with Morton Fraser and he's calling in from Edinburgh, which is where the head office is. It's one of my favorite cities. Uh, But I should stress, just in case you're wondering, this particular topic and what we'll be discussing today is common to all jurisdictions across the UK. So welcome Innes. And thank you for joining me virtually today
0: well thanks very much david delighted to to be here and get a chance to to chat about this
1: yeah brings up to speed with all things furlough
0: yep absolutely and quite a lot happening still
1: yeah and, and you know we we know all thi- all good things as i think broadly, this has been accepted to be all good things come to an end uh, i know you've got news on that timeline um but firstly perhaps could you give me um, a, a view on your experience with the scheme with perhaps some of your clients how many have sort of taken the scheme up?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of how widely the scheme's been used, the the answer is well, very widely indeed. I think um, if you look at statistics that are out there, there's a you know a very significant amount. You're probably talking between seventy and eighty percent of organisations have availed themselves of the scheme, and that's across a, a very wide range of sectors. It's also from very small organisations uh, up to very large organisations, and, and that's certainly been borne out by what we're seeing on the ground as well. So we've been advising uh, individuals who perhaps only employ one other individual. Uh, we've also been invite, advising you know, very large organisations who are having to furlough a, a significant number of employees. So it's certainly something that employers have availed themselves of. And I think it's certainly something they've seen as, as a, a lifeline, really, in, in certain respects.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and in terms of the proportion of the, the workforce that have been let go, uh, onto, put onto furlough, should say Um, and what's the general view on that
0: yeah I think I think it appears to be about one in four of the workforce you're talking just under nine million employees altogether. Wow. and I think one of the interesting things is to think about well what what would all this have looked like if we hadn't had the ability to furlough employees and you know I think the bottom line is it would have been a a huge number of redundancies within the the UK workforce had the government not offered up what I would suggest is actually a very generous scheme
1: yeah they needed to act, and uh, thank goodness they did. Um, the Chancellor has just announced a, an extension to the furlough scheme. I'll say, Jess, it was about the end of May. Um, and we've, we've had a, another more recent update a couple of days ago. Could you just give us a, perhaps an outline of, of where things are now? Because I think originally they were, they were only going to look to run this until the end of June. So, so what does it look like now? And from a practical point of view, how's it going to work?
0: Yes, well, quite significant changes uh, post the end of June. Uh, What the government have tried to do is introduce quite a flexible scheme, and we can come on and talk about how they've done that, David. But I I think probably of most significance from an employer's point of view is that there is going to be a a requirement for employers to make a a contribution towards the government grant uh, as of the the 1st of August. So there's no, no change at all in June. We're still exactly the same for June, Still exactly the same for July, except there isn't the ability to furlough individuals on a part-time basis, and we can perhaps come on and talk about that, About that, but there's no change in the amounts that employers have to make. But once you get into August, that's where things change. So as of the 1st of August, uh, the employer is going to be responsible for play, paying the employer national insurance and also the minimum employer pension contributions. So up until the end of July the government have been paying those uh, in addition to the, the capped amount of 80% of wages up to the cap of 2,500. Yeah. As of August, that's going to be a burden on the employer. And we can come on and talk about this, David, but I think this is where we're going to start seeing a bit of a shift in mindset from an employer's point of view about affordability in terms of whether they can continue to, to furlough employees and indeed continue to employ employees. So 1st of August is that change. And I, and I would say it's... Uh, Again, it's probably turned out more generous than people were expecting. I think before they announced these changes, the expectation was possibly employers were going to have to contribute 20 or 25% uh, as of, you know, pretty much with immediate effect from the extension, but that's yes. not the case. So as I say, no change in July, August, there's going to be the requirement to pay the employer NI and the pension contributions to the minimum level. In September, we we'll a, a more significant change. So as well as the requirement to pay the employer NI and the employer minimum pension contributions, there's also going to be an obligation on the employer to pay 10% of wages. So the government will pay the 70% of wages. The employee, employer will pay 10% of wages. So that gets you to your 80% of wages altogether, subject to the £2,500 cap. Okay. And then from the 1st of October, a further change so that the government will pay 60% of wages up to the £2,500 cap, with the employer having to pay 20% of of wages at that point.
1: So they're tapering this in to to give the business an opportunity to start getting used to this.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think one important point to make, and, and this is particularly important from an employee's perspective, but if you take a step back from an employee's perspective nothing actually changes at all. So right up until the end of October, if you're an employee and you're furloughed, then you're entitled to 80% of your wages up to the cap of two and a half thousand pounds. Yeah. It's just that the amount of that two and a half thousand pounds who actually pays it varies between um, month to month, as I said, on that on that tapered basis, as you, as you've highlighted there. So but I, So whilst it is beneficial from an employer's point of view in that it's not, they're not suddenly lumped with a, a big bill they weren't having before, the reality is that from the 1st of August over the next three months period, there's going to be an increasing burden on the employer to make contributions. And as I say, that may well sharply focus on employers' minds in terms of affordability and, and what we're going to do moving forward. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know? I, 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 on, that, on that particular point, I guess... With timelines looking as they do, there's, there's this whole situation around redundancy, and and that decision, that big decision: do we go, do we now decide to to make people redundant, or do we do we, you know, work towards bringing people back full time, based upon how how the business is doing? So some tough decisions ahead for businesses.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I, I I would imagine it's something that businesses are just keeping under constant review and it will, you know, there's no right or wrong answer as to what an employer should be doing. It's going to depend very much on their particular sector, uh, in their particular region and, and what's actually happening within their particular business. So I, certainly from the discussions I'm having with clients, I've no doubt that this is something that, that clients are looking at very, very carefully. And I, what I would say, though, is that Employers are going to have to think very carefully about the timings of any redundancies, yeah. uh, just in terms of realising that they are going to have to be paying more. So when do they want that cutoff point to be, if they are going to have to go f- from redundancies, when do they want the termination date to be in terms of trying to save as much as they possibly can do? Yeah. I, mean, we um, were good, I was going to
1: come on to this a bit later on, we, we sort of hit on the redundancy bit, so if you don't mind, I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll drill into this uh, just a bit further, because obviously some of the things that I'm aware of in very broad terms in terms of running a business is that, is that if you're going through a redundancy process, you, you've got consultation periods. So just, and that, that depends on numbers, but I can't I can't get my head around just remembering what, what the numbers are and what the timescales are, because that, that, that's obviously going to play a part, isn't it?
0: Yes, absolutely, and the the key cutoff point is where where an employer is making twenty or more redundancies uh, yes. in a ninety day period in one establishment. So let's start with a scenario though where there's there's fewer than twenty, so there's nineteen or or less redundancies, and in those circumstances, there's no actual statutory consultation period, but. What an employer does need to make sure is that they do adequate consultation, because if they don't, then they run the risk of an unfair dismissal claim. And a claim could be found to be unfair because there's not been adequate consultation. And I think there possibly is a change in mindset required for certain employers, because I suspect there's quite a lot of employers out there thinking, right, I've got people furloughed. Um, I'm now going to have to make them redundant. And they think the next step is just to go ahead and issue a letter of redundancy to the people on furlough, whereas that is not going to do it. And that would result in an unfair dismissal, at least procedurally. So it is very important that the proper redundancy process is followed. And absolutely central to that process is employers going into a period of consultation with the employees with an open mind as to to what the options might be to avoid redundancies, even if the employer does think it's very likely Uh, that there are going to have to be redundancies. There's always something that can come out of the bag that hadn't been thought about, and the consultation process is central to that. As I say, there's no statutory period of time, but I would say if you're looking at uh, redundancies where there's fewer than 20 employees, so 1 to 19, I think you're looking at somewhere between at least 10 to 14 days consultation but it will very much depend on the circumstances David so if you're talking at the lower end of that scale you probably could do it quite comfortably in a 10-day period but if you've got uh, 18-19 people you're proposing to make redundancies plus you've got a broader workforce as well when you might very well need uh, I've said 10 to 14 days you might very well need more than that so it will depend very much on the circumstances it will depend very much on on what the particular situation in the, the business actually is. But what is critical there is employers are mindful of the need to consult and that build that into any timeframes they are thinking about.
1: And, and the classic, it will be considered to be what, what was reasonable given. Yeah, certain.
0: absolutely. Reasonableness is is very much at the, the heart of all of this. So that, that's sort of a first scenario where there's fewer than 20. The next scenario is where you've got between 20 and 99 so, so an employer is proposing to make between 20 and 99 employees. So you've got a decent,
1: size, decent sized SME now. But, but yeah,
0: exactly. exactly. And again, that's within a 90 day period. And again, it's within one establishment. And in most circumstances, you've got a statutory consultation period of 30 days. And that's got right. to be with trade union reps, if the trade union is recognised. Uh, or if there's no trade union, it's got to be with elected employee reps. But what you've also got to bear in mind is even if you recognise a trade union, if a trade union, for example, recognises certain parts of a workforce but not other parts of a workforce, you would still have to have employee reps for the other part of a workforce if they're affected by the redundancies yeah. as well. Yeah. And again, just building into any timeline, if you've already got these reps in place, then it's all reasonably straightforward but if you've not got those reps in place and you're going to have to get reps in place and you're really going to have to allow another two weeks possibly for an election process to take place to make sure that you have got proper uh, elected employee reps you can't just go ahead and consult with the workforce directly without giving them the opportunity to to elect employee representatives Uh, and as I say once you've got those reps in place you've got to have a, a minimum consultation period of 30 days before the first dismissal takes effect
1: Okay, so he's starting to starting to eat into the period of we're talking about things being as they were. Uh, yeah, if businesses are starting to think about this. They've got to work back from presumably the end of October.
0: Well, that's right, and there may well be businesses working back from before that date if they don't want to be making um, a contribution. Plus, you've also got to take notice periods into of account course, as well. Course, yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. again, yeah, absolutely, uh, and it may very well be that employers will now to need to start looking at this very carefully. And the the final scenario, which we've not yet discussed, is where there's 100 or more employees proposed to be made redundant again in a 90-day period and again at one establishment. And in that circumstance, you've got a 45-day minimum consultation period. It it used to be a 90-day minimum consultation period, but it was reduced uh, a few years ago, so it's 45 days. But that's obviously quite a lengthy period of time. Uh, and bear in mind, again, that's just the minimum consultation period. It doesn't necessarily mean in any individual case that that will be adequate consultation, albeit sure. as long as it's done properly, uh, it, it should be adequate in most cases. But but where it will be risky is for an employer to serve notice either within the 30 days or the 45 days, depending on which period applies. Uh, the, the legislation says the first dismissal can't take effect until after thirty days or after forty-five days. So in theory, notice could be served within those periods of time for it to take effect after that. But the, the prevailing view certainly is that that would be very risky because you would run the risk of someone saying, "Well, there wasn't adequate consultation before you took the decision to to terminate and to serve notice." And certainly, our advice would be if if anyone is considering serving notice within these statutory periods and I would strongly recommend they they take advice so that someone can take a look at what's been done and take a view on whether they can serve notice but Certainly 30 days is sufficiently short But I just think in the vast majority of cases it would be highly unlikely to be something that would be a a prudent thing to do. Within the 45-day period, you might get to the stage where you've exhausted the consultation process within the 45 days, so you could serve notice. But but even then, as I said, I would strongly recommend people take advice before doing so because there are risks with doing it. And the stakes are pretty high here, David, in terms of if an employer gets it wrong, then as well as a possible unfair dismissal claim, they can get an award of up to three months' pay per employee made against them, and three wow. months' pay doesn't sound a huge amount. But if you've got oh, you know 150, know. 200 employees, like uh, you to... can get huge amounts of uh, awards being made.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Um,
1: let's let, let's now focus on on a more positive scenario. I mean, we talked about redundancy, which I think is a practicality we, we we really do need to look at because that's a that's um, a question mark for a lot of businesses right now. Let's say. Um, you mentioned there about this new introduction of part-time uh, options as of, I think you said the 1st of July? Um, yes, yeah, that that's would right. be an option. So let's look at that and, and looking at a more positive basis of people getting back into work, back, back to the place at work. I mean, how just remind us how that's going to work and in terms of their pay, I think you mentioned that everything is going to be as it was, but... but how does that work in
0: practice? Yeah, well, it, the concept of it's beautifully simple in that uh, as of the 1st of July, individuals who are currently furloughed can come back and work for a bit and then they're furloughed for the time that they're not working. So it allows a situation where an employers, perhaps they've got enough work for half the time, but not enough work for the other half of the time. And they can bring the individual back. The individual will work for half the time and will be paid in the usual way for half the time by the employer. For the other half, will still be eligible under the scheme. But it will be prorated. So if you were dealing with the the two and a half thousand pound government grant cap which will certainly apply up to the end of July. If employers, uh, having an employee work 50% of the time, as I say, the employer pays for that 50% just at the usual rate. The other 50% would be something they could claim from the government up to the cap of rather than 2500 if they're working half of the time then and not working half of the time, then it would be £1,250 would be the the maximum grant that the government would pay in those circumstances. So it all sounds relatively simple but the the government um, published guidance late on Friday um, relating to how it'll operate in practice including some examples and when you actually look at the detail of it I'm afraid it's um, rather complicated and I don't envy the employers who are having to do the sums here in terms of calculating uh, what the you know how much they can actually claim in any given circumstance but but very broadly as I say what you're doing is employers will claim a prorated amount of 80% of salary and we're based on the proportion of hours not worked out of normal working hours. And right. to, this is where it gets complicated, David. To calculate the normal working hours for those with fixed hours or pay, you simply take the number of hours worked in the pay period before the 19th of March 2020. And that was similar in terms of how you calculated salaries before, but you're now then looking at hours rather than amounts yeah. paid. And to calculate the normal working hours for those with variable pay, you take the higher of the average number of hours worked in the tax year 2019 to 2020, or the corresponding calendar period in the tax year 2019 to 2020. Um, So if you're dealing with July, you'd be looking 2020, you'd be looking at July 2019. Um, But as I say, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated in terms of how you actually do those calculations. But I would hope with the help of a, a spreadsheet and payroll that employers will be able to yeah, work I was thinking those
1: that out. I'm be hammering the calculators on that one and just trying to make sure that they're, they're getting their figures yeah. right.
0: Well, 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 it'll that be quite interesting. Be- yeah, I was just going to say it would be quite interesting to see just to what extent employers avail themselves of that because yeah. it, it may be that Rather than getting some people back on a part-time basis, you would just take some people off furlough and have them back working full-time, and you just reduce your your overall workforce requirements that way. So you could retain just,
1: a core workforce, just yeah, just, you know, making sure that you're you're getting back into th- into the swing of things and and rotate. I mean, you, there is always, I guess, with this three-week cycle of furlough, there's always been that option of having. Um, people on furlough, off furlough, so that yeah,
0: that's the, right. Yes. So that we, yeah.
1: But there aren't just there isn't just a great swathe of your of, of your uh, of your workforce. Um, yeah. and, I, and I know there's this is, there's is a lot of negativity around people on furlough and what they're not doing or what they are doing, and um, because they're not allowed to work, they're not allowed to, to get directly involved in in any revenue generation or any direct work for the business. But that doesn't mean to say that, that they don't they don't want to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, those people who are in work are going to think, well, they're at a holiday you know, they've had a great long holiday, What other people who are were, who were, who were on that holiday are starting to think, do I have a job when I get back? Because they're the favoured ones who are in work. There's this real conflict, I think, now within a workforce, which might have been quite uniform, but I think is a struggle. I, mean, I know that's yeah. partly of your remit in this, but...
0: No, absolutely, but, absolutely. but I, I think... That, I think could it does cause, raise... that could cause disputes. Yeah, but, very much so. And I think employers need to be very mindful of that. And it, it also raises quite an interesting point, David, about the, just going back to redundancies for a moment, is that employers who have furloughed some people and not furloughed others, they, they can't assume that it's necessarily going to be the furloughed people that will be made redundant. You've still got to look at issues of redundancy, pool, et cetera, which may well involve a combination of people who have been working throughout yeah. and some people who have been operating. That will be done in a very much on a, a job-specific basis rather than just looking at yeah. who's been furloughed, who's not been furloughed. So that, that's important. The other point you touched on there, David, was the the three-week minimum requirement. And it's maybe worth just... Highlighting that from the 1st of July, that three week minimum doesn't apply anymore. So, as of the 1st of July, you can furlough someone for uh, for any length of time. This is assuming we have already been furloughed because there was, oh, okay. I think we're going to come really on and talk about this, but there, there is a cutoff point in that people had to have been furloughed by the, the 10th of June so that there was a three week period, period of furlough leading up to the 30th of June. So, ha- so it's not possible to furlough
1: any new people from now, you know, all yeah, as of but- last Wednesday when it was on the 10th. So that, yeah. that that was a cutoff point.
0: Yeah, exactly. Subject to certain fam- people who were on family-friendly leave, and we can maybe come on and talk about that in a moment. Okay. But other than that, yeah, that's right. So you could only furlough someone uh, from the 1st of July, either who's already on furlough or who has already been furloughed. And just one other point, David, in relation to the the post-1 July changes that employers need to be aware about is that uh, from July onwards, the most that an employer can claim for is the maximum number of employees they've claimed for in a previous claim period. So what does that mean? What that means is, let's say in March, you've claimed for 10 employees on furlough, uh, in April 15, and then in uh, may 10 the most you can claim for moving forward in any claim period is the maximum number you furloughed so that was the 15 that i talked about so most you can claim for is the, the 15. and where that can potentially where that potentially is going to have an issue is people who have rotated employees so they might have had 35 people furloughed in yeah. april and then a different 35 in may as they rotated them so they've actually furloughed 70 employees but the most they could claim for in any claim period would be 35 so they'll have to think about how they deal with that moving forward if they were that's planning really to do
1: i don't think i've seen any of that in, in any of the articles or any of the other information that i've seen yeah
0: it's a really interesting point yeah it's not something that's been focused on by the the press HRE Source with David Lord and guests. They love talking about people, but in a good way.
1: When we're thinking about this return, do you, do you have any, any feel for, for, I suppose, from some of the clients you're talking to at the moment about when, when's a good time to be really starting to get people back to work, or is the government leading that timeline for us with this, the end of October?
0: Yeah, certainly in terms of people returning to. work it again it will depend very much on the the sector it will depend very much on the the individual workplace as to what's going on so for example I'm aware obviously the position's slightly different in Scotland and England in terms of the speed at which the governments are uh, loosening the restrictions but I gather in in England the the shops have reopened today is that right? That's right yep shutters are up. So from that point of view if you've got employees in that sector then obviously you'll now be looking at presumably returning individuals to work so that they can they can do their job so I think again it is something which employers have been keeping under review throughout in terms of when we're returning people to work certainly I think the the overriding criteria will number one be simply is is there is there sufficient work for someone to do to come back and if there is, then there's no reason why employers wouldn't wouldn't get them back and the new scheme allows the flexibility to get people back on a part-time basis I think the the actual government scheme and the fact that it's coming to an end at the end of October, even now because of a staggering that's going to take place because of the need to consult, because of the need to serve notice, I think employers will be thinking now, well, okay, what does that look like for me? Is it going to be a situation where I'm going to get people back to work, even though there might not be enough people to, enough work for them to do at this stage? And the reason you might do that is because you can see light at the end of a tunnel, you don't want the cost of laying off people and you don't then want the, the cost of recruitment when things turn up and you, you've let half your workforce go or a proportion of your workforce go. So there's all that sort of thing that people need to need to consider. Um, and that maybe just sort of leads us on to, to talking a little a bit about the things that employers need to or should be thinking about if they are trying to avoid redundancies.
1: Yeah, good
0: point. Uh, because certainly when you're dealing with one of the purposes of consultation, one of the key purposes of consultation is to consider ways to avoid the redundancy. Yeah. Uh, and that is the kind of thing that employers need to be thinking about. And certainly in, in normal times, the sort of things people would be thinking about to avoid redundancies would be, for example, is there other work that a person could do? I think in this sort of situation, when we're looking at very significant redundancies, it's less likely there's gonna be a vacancy elsewhere in the organization that someone can be shifted into, but equally there might be in certain cases. So that's the sort of easy way that you would look at it. The tougher decisions that might have to be taken are whether people are willing to agree to uh, salary cuts rather than face redundancies. Uh, That might be coupled with um, pro rata reductions in hours as well So you take a salary cut, but you're only working four days a week rather than five days a week. So that'd be another possibility. Other things which I I think might become quite prevalent depending on the sector is the possibility of employees remaining on furlough beyond the 31st of October. And obviously, the government help will end as of the 31st of October. That's an absolute. So there's not going to be any government help. But it would still be possible for employers to agree with employees that will remain on furlough. They won't get, you know, potentially might agree they're not going to pay them anything or they might agree a greatly reduced pay. And again, why would employers do that? Well, they might do it for the reasons I've said, because there's light at the end of a the tunnel, they don't need them yeah. just yet, but there is light at the end of a the tunnel. They can maintain the workforce without um, having to take the drastic step of redundancies by making these reductions, by having people agreeing to be off work, uh, hopefully the situation then improves and then they return to work in due course. So I think we probably, I've not been asked to advise on that yet, but we're still a bit away from the end of October. And I, I strongly suspect there'll be some employers at least will will look at that as a, as a possibility, as long as they see it as being a situation where the situation is going to improve. If the if situation isn't going to improve, then there probably isn't any point in doing that and you need to just uh, bite the bullet, as it were, and look at redundancies, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, for the for, for reason of, of certainty for the business, but also for the employee. In our, in our um, not-to-broadcast-green-room conversation just before we started, in this, uh, I think you touched on some research you'd be looking at with firm um, people management, um, and, about, and it's a, about the question of redundancy and whether the schemes actually work to save jobs or whether it's, it's created um, a deferral uh, or, or set up a, a situation of deferral for the redundancy decision can you recall that that, that, yeah that was was really interesting
0: yeah some quite interesting stats flowing from this people management survey so firstly over half of respondents i think it was 500 people they surveyed david it was 500 organizations it was that sort of scale and over half of the respondents said they would have made up to 25 percent of our furloughed staff redundant had it not been for the scheme so that's quite a significant chunk Nearly a third of respondents said it would would have been between 25% and 75% of the workforce that they would have had to have made redundant. And 12% of those that responded said more than 75% of employees currently on the scheme would have been made redundant. So it goes back to what I was saying at the the start, that but for this scheme, we would have seen in the UK unprecedented numbers of redundancies. And I suppose it's an interesting point you raise about you know, has it saved jobs or simply deferred the decisions on redundancy? And I think the answer to that is both. It undoubtedly will have saved jobs because there will be people who come the end of October, hopefully the economy's improved a bit, um, between now and then are taken back off furlough and returned to a job whereby in a situation of no furlough scheme, they would have been made redundant because the employer would have had little choice but to do that. For others... Yes, it probably has deferred the the decision to make redundancies and people will end up being made redundant, but that deferral has bought them time. It's meant that they've received an income during a period of time where it would undoubtedly have been extremely difficult to find employment elsewhere. The hope would be that even if they are made redundant, and whilst I think we will see a significant number of uh, redundancies, I would hope that by the time we get into the end of October and early November, the situation will have improved drastically from what it was over the last couple of months and even what it is now. So that uh, possibly a lot of people out there looking for jobs, there will still be a reasonable number of jobs and vacancies that start to open up for people. Yes. So yes. I think the reality is the scheme has been a big success. Uh, it, it has provided a, a valuable safety net, which had we not had, we would already be looking at, you know, redundancies in the millions. I'm quite certain of that. Carnage for sure, carnage for sure. Do you think we can expect many more changes to come from from chi I would not bet against it from what I've seen <laughs> before. I think we, yeah, for a while we were seeing changes, um, you know, almost on a daily basis. So I think the answer is quite possibly. I think, though, to be fair to the government, what we have tried to do is be very clear with employers as to what it is going to look like over the coming months and the main reason they've done that I think is to give employers certainty and they are very mindful of the need for collective consultation to take place so they're trying to give employers a a good timescale and a good understanding of what's going to be required between now and the end of October, so that employers can plan for that. So it is possible we we'll see changes. I think any changes we see from now on in are more likely to be technical changes, so David, rather than anything yeah. particularly drastic. So I suppose a, you know, one example of that was that um, when the government announced the the changes to the scheme uh, which are going to take effect so from the the first of July, concerns were raised about individuals who had you know, maternity leave, not being able to take advantage of it. And, and this goes back to the the point about furloughing individuals and when the cutoff point for furloughing individuals is. And it is the 30th of June, effectively, is a cutoff point, but someone needs to have been furloughed for three weeks at the 30th of June. So the cutoff point for furloughing employees was the, the 10th of June. And if you've not furloughed an employee by the 10th of June for the first time, then you won't be able to furlough uh, any employee for the first time yeah. beyond that day. So we, we do have an absolute cut-off point. Concerns were raised about, well, what about people who are on maternity leave, for example? What about them? And yeah, the they're family-friendly. Yeah, and the government have since announced that they will let individuals who are on maternity leave, paternity leave, other family of shared parental leave, that kind of thing, to be furloughed, even if it's after the, the 10th of June, the, the one... Key condition of that is that the employer must have furloughed employees before so not not the employee who's on family friendly leave but they must have furloughed at least one other employee before right. uh, for them to then be allowed to furlough someone who was on maternity leave so it's that sort of small tweaking around the edge yeah. to ensure yeah. fairness that i think we, we might see rather than anything more drastic than that okay. um,
1: and if, and if and, people want i've got any more questions on the scheme and, and want to know a little bit more or delve into this this subject to, to give them some peace of mind if they've got to make some big decisions, where, where are the, the places to go?
0: Yeah, well, certainly the I would suggest the government guidance as a starting point. There's quite a lot of guidance on the government website about the furlough scheme now, including how you calculate payments, I think how you calculate for hours, et cetera, now for part-time yeah. working. So that, that they have tried very hard to make sure they've, there is a lot of guidance there. So certainly look at that. ACAS have got some useful guidance as well. Um, I think for particular circumstances, if employers are struggling with it, then they, they should undoubtedly take legal advice for the reasons you highlighted before. There are, particularly when you move into redundancies, there are risks of claims being made. Uh, even with the furlough scheme, though, there is a risk when the... Uh, HMRC inevitably do their audits once the dust has settled on all of this, that there may be questions asked and challenges made by the revenue in relation to whether claims should have been made in certain circumstances and whether calculations were made correctly. So I think for all those reasons, employers, if if we're not sure about something, we should definitely take advice from that. Uh, uh, and certainly we've been advising a lot of employers in relation to the, the, the nuts and bolts of the scheme and how to apply it to certain particular st- circumstances so we're certainly very happy to to help anyone who might I, want to have a I, chat i know as you were
1: saying to me earlier you've been a very busy man and i'm not i saying have you, indeed given, so. given given the given the uh the discussion today which um we, we could we can double the time of this podcast but I'm, i don't think maybe we, we might have to revisit it maybe a little uh, a few weeks down the line when we may may have further updates but it's yeah been it's been in this Thank you for that excellent update. Um, I think we know a lot more about the furlough scheme, certainly the flexible furlough scheme, as it's now being called, and that our listeners are going to get a great deal from the podcast. Um, it, it strikes me that from the initial simply laid out scheme, it's, it's just evolved into more of a nuanced and potentially, for some, presents a, a lot more complex set of options. So, um, yeah, employees employers are going to have to have some some think very much, much more carefully about the way they take. Uh, Take decisions with regards to furloughing or redundancies and i think you've you've made those points very well indeed um some big decisions thanks again and it's, um i think in terms of, of of talking to anybody i think legal advice you've proved the point um it's a safe bet to come back and talk to somebody who actually understands this as you do and and other professionals who are able to support smes at this time because mistakes could be very very costly
0: yeah, absolutely. No, well, thank you very much, David. Delighted to have been able to, to speak to you this morning.
1: Okay. And, and, and I, I remember at, at the beginning of my introduction to this podcast, um, if you become a member of HR Assault's Community, you'll be regularly uh, virtually bumping elbows with experts like Innes, Um, And essentially, uh, you would be able to access podcast show notes with links to supporting information. So that's a real bonus for you if, you're, if you become a member. Thanks again, ines We're looking forward to catching up with you again very soon. Thank you
0: find out more and join our growing business community by visiting hresource.co.uk.